and welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, your host, and today we are super excited to have New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and educator, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson here with us. Tina is a psychotherapist and the founder of the Center for Connection and the Play Strong Institute. However, before she's a parenting educator or a researcher, she's a mom. We love how she sets limits on her clinical practice and speaking engagements so that she can spend time with her family. Alongside her husband of 27 years, parenting her three boys is what makes her happiest. And this is another reason why we are so grateful that she made time for all of us today. We are going to be chatting with Tina about how to discipline our children effectively and compassionately. We will discuss her research on the whole brain of a child and what we as parents can learn from this concept. We are excited to dive in, so let's welcome Dr. Tina Peen Bryson to learn more. Tina, we are just so thrilled to have you on our podcast, Chick Chat. Our team was just excited to learn that you were going to be a guest. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so excited to join you. You all have such an amazing podcast, so I'm happy to be here. Oh, well, it's our honor. And, you know, for the people who don't know you, which I'm like, how do you not know her? She is like the author of these amazing books, speaker, educator, all the goodness. But yeah, just to like start us off, can you tell us a bit about you and your background and how your experience led you to where you are today? I never meant to be an author or a speaker or to be a mental health licensed professional or to start and run an interdisciplinary clinical practice that served families with lots of needs, a place that I started called the Center for Connection, which is mental health and speech and language and occupational therapy and all this stuff. But I'm a mom to three boys. And as a mom trying to want to do the best and to be the most intentional, I started studying about the brain and child development in my graduate school. And when I started learning about how the brain functions and how relationships and and experiences in relationship change the brain, I was like, people have to know about this. And so I started teaching it like in small little groups to other parents and they were like, this is a game changer. And so I just knew that was my path was to take the science of what we know, share it with parents and educators and people who care for and love children to allow us to make what's important, important, and to not put so much pressure on ourselves about all the rest. But really what I found was for me is when I understood what was happening in my child's brain and nervous system in the context of development and the role that I could play in shaping that development and shaping those experiences, it was just such meaningful. It just helped me so much to realize my kid's not just a jerk. Like his nervous system is dysregulated right now. And so instead of punishing him for being a jerk or thinking, oh, he's he's got this terrible character, I could go, oh, this is developmentally what happens and this is what's happening in his brain and here's how I can help him become a really independent, self-regulated, amazing, kind human in the world by giving him those kinds of experiences. It just to me, it like, honestly, I feel the luckiest person in the world. I feel like I've been able to be a better parent. And I think I'm able to help other people understand their kids better and be more intentional. So that's what I love doing. I think you definitely do. I think you absolutely help parents do that. And one, I'd like to say that gives us 
all the listeners and me some hope that like, okay, they aren't going to just be jerks forever. (laughs) There is light at the end of the tunnel. And two, I'm curious, like, so you got into this, like, well before you had kids, it sounds like since you studied all this. So you must have just been like, oh, got children. I know how this is. Or your husband must have been like, score, I have the guru (laughs) to help me walk through these challenges with these kiddos. Was that how it felt? Or what was that actually having children compared to your studies? Yeah. I mean, my undergraduate degree was in education. I was going to be a high school English teacher. And then I got a master's in social work where I studied human development. And then I stayed home. I I really wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. My first son was 18 months old. And my husband came to me and said, you have to work. We can't afford for you not to work. And I was like, but that's not the plan. I want to stay home with the kids. And I'll just be honest with you. I'm really particular about how I like things done. And when it came to my children, I was extremely particular about how I wanted things done. And so I wanted to be the one to do it. So I said to my husband, okay, if I'm going to work for decades, then let me just get a PhD really fast so that I can be a professor and I can have the same hours as my kids. And what was kind of amazing is, so I started the PhD program when my firstborn was 18 months. And so everything I was learning became really personal. And I was studying this field called interpersonal neurobiology. And so I'm reading articles, I'm doing all the academic work, but all of it was thinking about my children and their development. And so everything I did really was organic in chasing the next thing that I felt like helped me as a parent understand my kid. So, and and fortunately, I have a really, an amazing husband who really wanted to co-parent with me so that when I was reading articles or studying, he was taking care of the kids. And really, like this morning, I've been in meetings all morning and he's driven our kid to and from basketball. And so, yeah, it's really helpful to have a partner and the freedom and flexibility to be able to work in this way and still be a really involved mom. For sure. That's so cool. And as I mentioned, we at Baby Check are just huge fans of your work. And I really loved your research on the whole brain child and your no drama discipline. Can you elaborate on these concepts for our listeners who are unfamiliar? Yeah. So as I was in grad school, I was a really frustrated student because I kept asking questions about, but what is the mechanism? Like, why is that the case? And I never got satisfactory answers, but I went to a conference and Dan Siegel, who's the co-author of four of my five books, he was giving a talk and he had this whole like interpersonal neurobiology sort of lens and everything clicked for me to understand the kinds of questions I had. And so The Whole Brain Child was written, it was our first book together. And It's really the idea that the different parts of our brain do different things. And we want them to do different things. If your brain only did one thing, we would be really unsophisticated. So we want the different parts of our brain to do different things. For example, we want our prefrontal cortex, which helps us have empathy and insight and pause. And in fact, the way I teach this to little kids is I say, the higher part of your brain is what lets you pause and make calm, kind choices and be a problem solver. And the lower parts of your brain are where you have really big feelings and you just want to do something. So those are both really important, good things, the higher parts and the lower parts, which in the whole brain child, we call the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain. But what we want is for them to work together as a team to be integrated with each other. And so really, we explain the science behind when the different parts of our brain are integrated, we're able to function, have better mental health, or have better relationships, etc. And so the whole brain child is really some different strategies that help promote our child's development to have a more integrated brain. For example, the first strategy in that book is called Connect and Redirect. And it's the idea that when our kids are having challenging behaviors, 
often our first instinct is to just knock it off, stop it. But really, if we connect with them first with empathy and connection, it can actually calm their brain down that allows them to learn better when we redirect the behavior. So there's little things like that that we, we sort of talked through. Or like name it to tame it is another strategy in that book, which is really how we help our children make sense of the world as we help them tell stories about what happened. Like if your 18-month-old bumps their head and we can say, oh, ouch, that hurt. You were sitting here and you hit that table and ow. And that hurt and you cried and mom came and picked you up and comforted you. And we're just sort of walking them through how things work. And over time, they come to learn that sharing their stories with us and with each other is an important way to understand the world. And we explain sort of some of the what's happening in the brain, you know, using words is more left hemisphere and our felt experience in our body is more right hemisphere. So we're bringing those together, et cetera. And then when after we wrote The Whole Brain Child, which I guess the thesis is that the kinds of experiences we provide our children really do matter who they become and how their brains get wired. And we don't have to be perfect. We can mess up all the time as long as we make the repair with our children. We're still doing really good work. And then really what was interesting out in the world, I was out speaking about the whole brain child, but most of the questions people asked were about discipline. And I have a really unique take on discipline. And so Dan and I started collaborating and decided to write the book, No Drama Discipline. This is pretty, it's a lot less revolutionary now than it was eight years ago when we wrote the book. But here's the main idea of No Drama Discipline. The point and purpose of discipline is for our children to become self-disciplined people that don't need us to step in and discipline them. And so the way we get there is through a lot of practice and teaching and waiting for development to unfold. So just like when I go to the gym and I lift weights and I do reps, my muscle gets stronger. These are the same kinds of skills. We, we need to give our kids lots of reps of learning skills. So the whole revolutionary idea behind this is that most of the time when this society talks about discipline, we usually mean consequences and punishment. But what Dan and I decided to do was to reclaim the original meaning of that word, discipline, which is to teach and to build skills. So it's kind of a a little bit of a radical idea that every discipline moment is actually about teaching and skill building so that our child has a better chance, especially as development unfolds, to do it differently and better the next time. And a lot of what we do in the name of discipline not only doesn't teach our kids how to do it better the next time, but it's counterproductive. Let me give an example. So my five-year-old hit his brother so hard on the back that he left a handprint, which is called five-starring. I didn't know this, but you leave a handprint and the five points of the fingers make it look like a star. So my eight-year-old comes running in, JP five-starred me. And I was like, what does that mean? And he lifted up his shirt and I saw my five-year-old's perfect handprint on Luke's back. So the first thing I did was I comforted Luke. Oh, sweetie, that looks like it hurts. You know, do you want me to put a cool rag on it? Are you, you know, so I comfort him. And then it's time to deal with the perpetrator, right? It's time for the discipline moment. It's not okay for them to hit each other. That's one of our family rules and values. So I come around the corner to deal with JP, who's five or so at the time. And he's just fuming. He is just like, he's just like a monster of anger. Now, old ways of how I used to think about discipline or how a lot of the society thinks is like, you have to address the behavior right then and there or they won't learn. 
but that's wrong. That's based on old animal studies in the 50s. Even a two-year-old, after a nap and a snack, you can say, hey, let's tell the story of what happened earlier when you threw your shoe at mommy's face. Like, you can totally wait. The second thing old school discipline would say is make them apologize. Go tell your brother you're, you know, you're sorry. However, when you're in a rage state, you don't have empathy for anyone else. So it's a totally ungenuine apology. And the other person knows that and feels it. And then I might throw out a consequence, go to your room or, you know, I'm taking away a privilege or whatever. But then I have to ask myself the question, would doing any of those things make it more likely he would control his anger better the next time? No. And in fact, if I take away his play date that day and send him to his room, he's going to go sit in his room and think about how mean I am, how it was Luke's fault in the first place, because Luke did do something to piss him off. And all of his attention and emotional resources would go to Luke's fault and my fault. And he wouldn't spend any time thinking about his role in it. And he wouldn't have any better strategies to manage his anger later. So really ineffective discipline. So instead, I have to think about this as, okay, If the whole point and purpose of discipline is to teach, and the issue here is he felt anger, that's a healthy human emotion, but he didn't handle it well. So I think I ask myself the question, what is the lesson I want him to learn? Or what is the skill he needs to build? And what's the most effective way to do it? The brain is either in a reactive state where we cannot learn, or it's in a receptive state when we can learn. And I promise you, when your child is raging and tantruming and verbally aggressive and physically aggressive, They are not hearing you. In fact, the inner ear even changes to make it harder to hear the human voice when we're in those kinds of aroused states. So my number one job with teaching in mind is to calm my child's little nervous system down so he can move from reactive into receptive. The quickest way to do that is through connection and empathy. This is really counterculture because, you know, he hit his brother. You're going to be nice to him and calm him down, right? This is very countercultural. So what I say to him is, oh, JP, you look so mad what happened? And so he starts telling me about how mean Luke is. And then I say, yeah, that would have made me really mad too. And it's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to hit. So what happened for you? I know, you know, it's not okay to hit, but you, you know, that happened. What did that feel like in your body? So we just have a conversation about it. Then I ask him once he's calm with this connection and this co-regulation, what do you need to do to make things right with Luke? And it's okay to be angry, but what could you do differently next time to not hit? So we have these conversations. Now, obviously he's five, so we can have this conversation. With a three-year-old or a two-year-old, I would address the behavior, address the feeling, and move the heck on. I would say, no hitting. You were angry. You know, you were frustrated, but no hitting. And I think I hear birds outside. Let's go see if we can find them. (laughs) Because otherwise we're giving a lot more attention to the misbehavior. So really, it's a revolutionary way to think about Am I teaching and building skills? Because a lot of behavior is communication about what kids don't have the ability to do yet. So then instead of doing something to them, like throwing out a random consequence, what I want to do is do something for them to build that skill. So over time, I'm disciplining a lot less because they become self-disciplined. Oh my gosh, Tina, you did that so beautifully. Like you haven't (laughs) probably done this a million other times, which I know you have, but that was a perfect recap of both of those books to like really get the summary or the gist of what people can get when they pick up those books and what to expect. So thank you so much for walking us through that. That was amazing. And I love how you gave us like some practical 
examples of, you know, your five-year-old or a two-year-old or a three-year-old. And I'm curious because you are just this wealth of knowledge. Are there any other practical ways parents can apply this information in their approach to child rearing? Because I'm sure you have some other amazing tips that we would just love to learn. I tend to not be super prescriptive. I want to be really practical, but every situation is so different. Every child is different. Every parent is different. So for me, I mean, yeah, so really the strategies in whole brain child and no drama discipline, we actually have reconnection strategies or connection and redirection strategies in those books. I think timing is everything. So you want to make sure your child is ready to learn and you're ready to teach. I think a huge, really practical, although very difficult strategy is about regulating ourselves. So the idea is that we can't help move our children into these receptive states when we're raging. And when our children are raging, it's really contagious. What I want to say, because the books are full of practical strategies, including at the end of No Drama Discipline, we have 20 strategies or 20 discipline mistakes even great parents make. And actually on my Instagram, which is Tina Payne Bryson, I've been doing a different discipline mistake every Monday and talking about what to do instead. So there's tons of practical stuff. But what I think might be more helpful is to talk about one of the ideas from my book with Dan Siegel called The Power of Showing Up. I'll give a super brief summary of that because this is my North Star for every moment that I don't know what to do. It's sort of like my default The idea from this book is it's the summary of about 60 years of cross-cultural research about what is it that is the best predictor for how well well our children turn out. It's a pretty important idea, right? And the answer to that is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one parent. Has nothing to do with attachment parenting. So I'm not talking about attachment parenting. I'm talking about mammals and what's called attachment and bonding. The idea behind it is that it's a mammal instinct, this attachment because it allows us to have a better chance at surviving. So attachment is all about connection and protection. So if you're a bear cub in the jungle, you see a, or in a forest, you see a scary predator, you get hurt, you hear a noise, you have an instinct to go to your mama bear who will help you survive. And when she gets close to you and communicates, I've got you, the bear's physiology and emotions calm down because they feel safe again. This is exactly what attachment is. Our babies cry, we pick them up, we regulate their little bodies and their heart rate slows down and they stop crying and we make them feel safe. So what Dan and I talk about in that book is that if this is one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out, and it has a lot to do with how their brains get developed from these repeated experiences of their attachment figures showing up for them and helping them feeling connected and protected, how do we cultivate that? And in that book, we talk about the four S's, helping them feel safe, not only protecting them from harm, but also being predictable ourselves. And so when we are not predictable and we, for example, yell and scream at them and throw dice across the room, which I have done, that after those moments, we repair with them and we become predictable again. And so helping them feel safe, like I've got you. Helping them feel seen and known, like my parent understands me and gets me and they love me for who I am. They really get what my internal experience is. And then soothed is where we comfort them and nurture them and help them co-regulate when they're falling apart. And this is the idea that at their worst, that's when they need us the most and we're going to show up. And then all of those feeling safe, seen, and soothed, not perfectly, but enough, lead us to this fourth S of security, which is really where our brains wire based on all these repeated experiences to know that if we have a need, 
our parents going to see it and show up for us. Like I cannot lose their love. And what that does then is it allows them to help themselves. They make themselves safe and they understand themselves and see themselves. They soothe themselves and then they can provide those four S's in future relationships. The reason I bring this up is because First of all, I love this research because it's so full of hope. One is it tells us we can mess up all the time. And as long as we repair, it's actually good for our kids. Okay, so that's great. I love that. Number two, it tells us that history is not destiny. Not only how you were raised doesn't mean that's how you're going to have to raise your children, but also if you don't like the way you parented this morning or yesterday or this week or this month or since your child was born, you can always make a change and your child's brain will benefit because those attachment patterns are based on experiences and the repeated experiences. So as soon as we start changing the experiences, helping our kids feel more safe, helping them feel more seen and understood, helping them feel more soothed and nurtured and know that they can trust us to show up, it starts changing their brain right away. And finally, I love it because for me, it's the North Star. There are so many moments. I'm a licensed mental health professional. I am a PhD level child development specialist. And I most of the time have no idea what I'm doing because kids are different and every developmental stage is different. And what worked this morning isn't working this afternoon. And sometimes I'm in a great state and sometimes I'm grumpy as hell and they're annoying me because they are annoying, you know? And so what I love about this is it's a North Star for me because If I don't know how to respond, here's a really practical tip. Give yourself permission to not have to respond in that moment. You can say, I want to talk about this, but I'm not ready. Or I want to think about how I want to respond. Or even, I'm angry right now, and so I'm going to go calm my body and brain down so that we can have a good conversation. All of those things. Give yourself permission. You don't have to respond in the moment. There are exceptions. Obviously, if you're seven-month-old is sticking their finger in a socket or reaching for something hot, you're going to respond immediately, whatever. That's not really a discipline issue though. That's more just safety. But what I love about this is I can always go to the four S's. It's my North Star. If I can respond in a way that will help my children, my husband, my best friend, anyone I'm in relationship with feel safe and seen and soothed and secure and knowing I'm going to keep showing up, that is always the best answer. It builds their brain. It builds relationship. It works. It calms people down. So I know that's more of a conceptual thing there as opposed to a parenting hack or trick, but for me, it's been the most helpful. To me, that is still a parenting hack. To be able to remind yourself of those four S's, I think that's still super practical and helpful. So I know that you were maybe thinking I was thinking of like literal things to do in moments, but that alone is such actually an even better tip because it can be applied in so many different instances rather than when potty training and you're frustrated, you should do this. So this is awesome. The thing that goes with that is, so let's, let's use your example of potty training, keeping in mind that the brain is an association machine. And so if something is pleasant, we want to do more of it. If it's unpleasant, we want to do less of it. And I think a lot of times we make mistakes around potty training and mealtime, sitting at the table using manners, or let's say you have an older kid and they tell you about something and you freak out. We often do things where we are applying pressure or, we're get, ang- or we get angry or we're, we even shame our kids. Well, you should be able to do this by now or whatever. When we criticize our children or we minimize how they're feeling, 
they're like, oh, that doesn't feel good. I don't want to do this or I don't want to share this with, I'm not going to tell you things anymore because you freak out or you're so stressed out during potty training or meals times that your children's like, that's unpleasant. I'm going to avoid that. So thinking about the brain as an association machine, how do you give your kid a positive experience of wanting, enjoying it and wanting to do more of it? That's so important in those areas. And so when we think about these four S's, I'll give an example of this in real time. Since you have a four-year-old, I'll tell a four-year-old story. So my son JP was having a total meltdown even before the bath, but and for some reason, I don't know why I forced the bath anyway. I should have just let him go to bed dirty. But anyway, for some reason, I made him do bath time. I can't remember why. So he's in the bath. He's tantruming, tantruming, and he's freaking out about one particular Lego guy. He's got a 50 Lego guys in there, but for some reason he needs this special Lego guy that his brother doesn't want him to play with. And I want to respect that boundary because the brother's really generous in sharing the other Legos. So JP is just totally tantruming, falling apart, freaking out about this Lego guy. I'm not getting out of this bath ever till you bring me that guy, you know, and he's just out of control. So the first thing I have to do is I'm going to use the four S's in this moment. I want him to feel safe. And a couple ways I do that is one, holding my boundary. This is not permissive parenting. Giving kids boundaries and expectations and limits helps them feel safe because they know what to expect. So I'm going to hold my boundary. Hey, buddy, it's time to get out of the bathtub. But the other thing I'm going to do for safe is I'm going to stay calm myself, which requires, so I want to be the calm in the storm. That means I can't be the storm. And if I am the storm, I'll repair. Okay, so no problem there. But what I do in that moment that helps me, this is very practical, is I put a hand on my chest and a hand on my belly. And I take a long, deep breath where my exhale is longer than my inhale. That's the quickest strategy we know to downregulate or to calm our nervous system. So I'm going to do two breaths where my exhale is longer than my inhale with my hand on my chest and my belly to kind of ground myself. And I'm going to say to myself, at his worst, that's when he needs you the most. Because when they're physically hurt, we're really good at comforting and nurturing and helping. But when it's emotional or behavioral, we're not so good at it. Because we're worried they're going to be terrible people and live in a van down by the river and never amount to anything. And we let the fear take over. So I need to stay that calm in the storm. Because if I'm out of control, then my child's brain has to kind of panic like they can't take care of me because they can't even take care of themselves right now. So for safe calm, holding my boundary. I say to him, it's time to get out. You can either get out by yourself or I will help you out. I'm not getting out. And he splashes me. I'm staying calm. So then I say, it's time to get out. I will help you. So I slip my hands under his little armpits, slippery little guy. And as I'm pulling him out, I'm going to practice scene. What I want to do is respond to him in a way that matches what he's feeling inside as best I can. So I say, you're so mad you have to get out of the tub. Is that right? You really wanted that Lego guy. I know, buddy. So I'm just helping him feel seen and known and understood. And by the way, that's also the name it to strategy that when we accurately name emotions, it calms down the reactivity in the brain. Then I wrap the towel around him and I practice soothed. And for me, one of the best ways to practice soothing and nurturing is to just be present. We don't even have to use a lot of words. I can say, I know you're having such a hard time and I'm right here with you while you're upset. And physical comfort works too. Wrapping the towel around him, hugging him. Those are all ways to soothe and nurture. So that's an example of, of doing that. And then after having lots of those kinds of experiences, he knows over time I can handle his big emotions. I trust that he can handle his big emotions. I'm going to stick to my boundaries, but 
I'm here with him as he has a hard time. So it's really like I'm saying no to a behavior like staying in the bathtub, but I'm saying yes to him and his experience and him sharing it with me. So that's kind of the four S's in action. Oh, thank you for giving that because that was an amazing example because sometimes people will give us a tip, but then people will say, okay, but how do I apply this like in a real day moment? And so that was a fantastic example that I think many of us who are listening can absolutely relate to and now can utilize that moving forward. And I love that you're also saying that it's okay when you're in that, if you're, you are the storm, you can self-regulate in a minute. It's okay to make mistakes, but we can, we can get it together and and do better. Yeah. And usually that what that repair looks like is so after I screamed at my kids and threw the Yahtzee dice across the room, I walked away and kind of got my composure. And then I came back and I was like, guys, I got angry and I handled that really poorly. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And can I have a do over? Right. It can be really simple. So, yeah, just those repairs allow our children to know that even if there's a feeling of mom's crazy right now and that didn't feel good and I didn't like that or she was scary or whatever, that I know based on previous experiences that she's going to come make it right with me. So what it does is it actually builds relational resilience because they have an experience of sitting in the messiness of the conflict that's inevitable in every relationship and know that it's going to get okay again. So they don't think the first time they have a fight with a friend or a future significant other that it means the relationship is over. So that's why it's beneficial as long as we make the repair. And we can keep it really simple. Yeah, that's so simple. And I have to say, I also love how you approached your children and said, I'm sorry. Because I think that at least in my, (laughs) for me growing up, and I think for my generation, our parents didn't apologize to us in moments when maybe they lost their cool. And so we have to train our brains to recognize like, it's okay for us to apologize to our children, for them to see us make mistakes and for us to ask for forgiveness, because that then hopefully teaches them that it's okay for them to make mistakes and ask for forgiveness too. Am I understanding that right? Absolutely. So yeah, we're definitely modeling the the apology, but we're also showing our kids like we're not perfect. And so they don't have to be either. Right. So that takes some of that pressure off. And then the other thing is, I think it's so great for them to watch us be authentically human. When we mess up and we don't apologize, like they know that wasn't okay. By the time they're four or five, everything we ever lecture them on, they already know right from wrong. Almost about everything by the time they're four or five, they know that wasn't right. They know that's not how we want to be respectfully communicating with each other when we lose it like that. And then if nobody ever talks about it, what it does is it kind of gives our kids a message like, we don't talk about everything in our family. You know, we just move past it and your experience, you know, you just need to deal with that on your own. So we we end up communicating a lot of our values and a lot of our family rules by the things we omit as well. You know, like I think about a time when my kid was pouting about not getting movie popcorn. We were going to go to the movies and he was pouting. He was like 10 and he was pouting when I said, no, we're not going to get popcorn, but I'll still take you to the movies. And it made me so mad. I'm like, you're so spoiled. I'm doing something nice for you. And you're pouting. Are you serious? But what happens is when we criticize, like you're being so spoiled, or I can't believe you're fussing about that, or we minimize it, like you're making such a big deal about things. That brain is an association machine is like, that didn't feel good to share how I felt. Maybe I probably won't share as much next time. But instead, when I can say, oh, you seem disappointed, 
about not getting the movie popcorn. Yeah, you really love it. And I know last time we got it, but we don't do movie popcorn every time. You've had a lot of junk food lately. So I'm, I'm still not giving in. I'm holding the boundary. We're not getting popcorn at the movies. But I want to respond in a way with, with empathy and connection so that he has a rep of when I express how I feel, it feels good. She's not hard on me or whatever. So I want to, it's okay. I want to keep sharing with her. And sometimes we say things that we don't know they internalize. Like we say, I don't want to hear it. They internalize that and we will stop hearing it. So we do a lot of implicit communication of underneath the words that is important for us to think about. And I so appreciate you sharing that. And it makes me think again, back to my childhood where I heard the term spare the rod and spoil the child. And this whole mentality, it's so different, which I appreciate because I'm obviously trying to do things differently with my family. And what do you say to people who respond that way when they hear this? They're like, oh, well, you're just encouraging that behavior. You're not nipping it in the bud and addressing it. And again, that whole spare the rod, spoil the child type of mentality. Like, what do you say to those old school thoughts? Well, and that's why I say that the no drama discipline approach and what we've written about here and what I'm talking about, it's counterculture. It really is. And I think one huge mistake, and this is one of the mistakes that we have in the book too, is that people think that either you're strict and have boundaries and rules and you're teaching your children to be disciplined or you're warm and fuzzy and nurturing and that those are opposites. But actually what the science says over 70 years of of research shows that we need to be high on both. This is not permissive. We have boundaries and rules and limits and all of those things that we're enforcing. But if we can also bring warmth and connection and empathy to that, it actually makes their brains more receptive to learning. So it's more effective in terms of holding them accountable for their behavior. And the other piece about that is all about the teaching, right? So it is about them learning the skills so they can do better. One of the things, exactly what you're saying there, is that, so when I say, okay, so my kid was he had just hit his brother, right? And you're being really empathetic about that. And you're like, oh, you're so angry. Like, aren't you just indulging him? And aren't you just giving attention to the misbehavior? Here's what I'm doing. So the part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex that allows us to regulate our behaviors and regulate our emotions and make good decisions is built from experience. And it's still developing all the way into the mid to late 20s. So it's really a part of the brain that we can have a huge impact on by how we parent. When my child is falling apart and dysregulated and acting out, and I come in with connection to calm him down and help him kind of move back into a regulated state, what I'm doing is I'm giving his brain a rep of going from dysregulated back into regulated. And that's how children learn how to regulate themselves and to self-soothe and all of that. I'm also giving attention to when things are really terrible, I'm going to show up for you. And I still have expectations and boundaries. Like I'll say, I know you know that wasn't okay, but what happened there? So I'm giving them practice about insight and tuning in and what led me to that and what can I, what could you do differently next time you feel that anger? So what I'm doing is I'm giving a lot of attention to what we would want them to do. One of my other favorite discipline strategies with that in mind is to give kids practice doing it the right way. So instead, if my kid comes in and he's really disrespectful in his tone and his words to me, instead of saying, go to your room or go to timeout, which doesn't let them practice anything, is to say, I can see you're really frustrated right now and I still want you to talk to me in a more respectful tone. So let's rewind, back up, and then come back in the room. Let's try it again. 
So we give them a practice doing it the right way. So really people who say that this approach is indulgent, it's really outdated science. It really is. And really, you know, a lot of people take the spare the rod, spoil the child thing literally, which is not actually how it's meant to be in the Bible. The rod was never used to hit the sheep. It was used to guide the sheep. But there are there are now hundreds of, over a decade, really strong science, tons of papers, uh, white papers, research, peer-reviewed articles showing the massive negative outcomes of spanking. Not only is it not as effective as many other things, but it can do harm. So that's old school, outdated parenting as well. Thank you so much for addressing that because I always have just, I don't have the right words whenever someone asks me that. I'm like, just look at the science. <laughs> look at the updated science. So I appreciate you addressing that. And also to go back to your story of your five-year-old hitting your, your son, I also wanted to point out that I loved how you first gave attention to the child who was hit. Because I think that it's very common that parents immediately just, they hear that and then they go to the child who hit first. But first, I just wanted to point out that you consoled and were there and present for the child who was hit first. And then you went and addressed the problem. So I just wanted to like highlight that, that that was something else that I picked up and that I loved because I know that, and sometimes I have that problem. Like I have a 15 month old and a four year old and my daughter, the 15 month old will like pinch my son and he'll be like, ow, she pinched me. And I'll go, Lily, do not do that. But I should, <laughs> you know, it's a pinch or whatever, but I should say, oh, I'm so sorry, buddy. That really, that, that hurt. hurt. Let me give it yeah. a kiss. Oh, it's going to yeah. be all right. I'm here for you. Okay. Now, Lily, was that very nice? You know, I should have yeah. done. Yeah, you know, yeah. So I just wanted to point that out. I really loved your example of that as well. And why do you think it's important to address the person who has, who, the victim, I guess, <laughs> versus immediately addressing the problem? Yeah, I think a couple of reasons. One is when you have more than one kid, it's a little bit like whack-a-mole, right? It's like yeah. hard to know where to go. And so to me, like being a family-centered family is really about who has the greatest need right at this moment, like triage, right? So I've got somebody who's hurt. That's my number one priority, right? So like, for example, if he were pinched, but she started choking on something right then, you would immediately like, right? So it's about triage. You go to what, where's the greatest need? And sometimes the greatest need is even for the parent. Like I'm so sleep deprived that I'm not driving safely or I am losing my mind. Like I need some time by myself. I need to rest. So sometimes it's us. Most of the time it's our kids. But I think whoever has the greatest need first. I think it also models great empathy when someone is hurt. You go to them and you comfort them and you connect with them. And again, it gives the other kid a minute to start calming down. I'll say a couple other little nuances since you highlighted that. One is, obviously, if you have a 15-month-old, you need to be watching her so you wouldn't move away from her unless she was in a safe place. But with my, my boys were five and eight in that story. And I knew if Luke stayed there while I had that reflective dialogue with JP and got him back into this regulated state before I addressed the behavior, that he would have been mad. Like, he would have been like, why are you being so nice to, like, so I basically just said, Luke, I'm going to go deal with JP now, but do you need anything? Okay. And he's like, just deal with him, you know, whatever. So I didn't do it where Luke could hear me do that. The other thing I did was after JP was calm through my connection, and I know that must have made you so mad when he told the joke to grandma and grandpa, and you were trying to tell it to them on the phone. And he's the little guy, and Luke stepped on his line, and it was upsetting. And he's like, and I tried to use my words, but he, he made fun of me. And so what I 
did in that moment is that once he was calmer and he could listen to the thing is I allowed him to feel the weight of his experience. What I mean by that is I said, and we one of the other discipline mistake we make all the time is we talk way too much. So I said to JP, hey, you really hurt Luke. And I just paused. Now, if I had said that when he was still raging before he was calm, he would have been like, good. I wish I had hit him with two hands. I wish I had double five-starred him. But now that he's calm and he's regulated again, I can say, you really hurt Luke. And I pause and I let him feel that. That's healthy conscience. So his head drops a little bit and I can tell he feels bad. That is the most powerful discipline strategy right there is letting them feel that because feeling guilt and feeling like, oh, I did something I shouldn't done is a really negative feeling. And so our nervous system is programmed to not want to feel that. This is evolutionary in, in the fact that before we had houses and things like that, when we lived out in the wild, we had to be part of a group in order to survive. If we got separated from our group, if we were kicked out of our group, we were more, far more likely to be eaten by the lion, right? So that healthy conscience we have that gives us that uh-oh feeling like, oh, I shouldn't do that or I shouldn't have done that, that is wired in us to prevent us from continually violating the mores of our tribe so we don't get kicked out. It's a really helpful feeling. So I let JP feel that. And then I say, I can tell you feel bad about hurting Luke. And if he says, no, I don't, then I know he's not there yet, right? And I'll come back to it later. But he's, and, and so I'll say, yeah, that feeling you have in, he, in you right now, that's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That is such an amazing superpower you have because that feeling you have inside of you is going to guide you and tell you what's right and what's wrong. So you listen to that. And then when you make a mistake like you did today, we all make mistakes and you have that feeling, you can go make it right. So how do you think you can go make it right with Luke? So it's really such an amazing opportunity. Like, again, had I just thrown a consequence, I'm taking away your play date, go to your room. You clearly can't be with people today. He would have spent all of his emotional and attentional and cognitive energy. I know we totally make up the reason. We just throw out a consequence and then we back it up with some reason we come up with in the moment. But he would have spent all his attention on how mean Luke and I are and no one understands him and he's the little guy. But because of the way I did that moment, he had to spend a lot of cognitive and emotional energy and attention thinking about what he did and how he was responsible there. And that is a huge teacher so that the next time that may influence, at, again, as his brain develops and allows him to be capable of regulating those anger emotions. That was effective. So at the end of that, it's like, did I teach? Yeah. Okay. Well, did I make it more likely he'll make a better choice and handle it better the next time? Yeah. Okay. I'm done. That is discipline. I don't have to throw a consequence in there or, you know, whatever. So I think it's just, it's a totally different mindset is to just really going back to, am I teaching or building skills? And, you know, a lot of times I love doing this in parenting workshops where I'll ask the parent to get a piece of paper and write down discipline problems and write like three things on there that drive them the most crazy, that they're most worried about, or that are the biggest issues. And it might be like sharing or hurting their sibling or not listening or whatever, not following first-time instructions, whatever they are. Then I ask the parent to cross out the title of the list and to retitle it. And the title now should be Skills My Child Needs to Build. And it's the same list, right? And it's a totally different way of thinking about all of those things because our children's behavioral problems are basically them communicating I don't have skills in this area. I work in a lot of schools and there was this one boy who kept getting in trouble in first grade because he kept using inappropriate language during library time. He kept saying he loved 
talking about butt cracks during library time. And when he did, his the friends around him would laugh and he kept getting in trouble over and over and over, but he kept doing it. So I got called in to be like, we don't know what else to do. We've given him consequences. We've done all these things. You know, we don't know why he keeps doing it. So I observed him. And he was a little boy who had a really hard time entering play with his peers. He had a really hard time kind of getting in the rhythm of what was happening. He was a little awkward and had trouble socially. And so I was like, that brilliant little kid, oh my gosh, that bad behavior, and I'm using air quotes as I say that, that bad behavior was his best strategy and attempt to fit in and to join in with his peers. So what his behavior is telling me is basically he's saying to all of us adults who are watching, I need skill building in how to connect with my peers in more appropriate ways. So I can take away recess or send notes home or make him sit out. He'd lose his library privilege time, but none of those things help him solve that problem. So he's going to keep coming up with his best strategy, which isn't appropriate at school. So this is, again, back to instead of doing something to him like a consequence, what can I do for him to help him build those skills? So then we started giving him a couple of phrases and jokes and things he could say that were appropriate that he could pull out. So it's just such a powerful way to empower our kids to let them practice being successful and building those skills. So really, if you're an effective disciplinarian, and by that I mean teacher, you're going to be disciplining less and less and less over time. It gets easier and easier because your children become self-disciplined. Tina, you, like, I want you as my mom (laughs) 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 or my best friend or like, oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, gosh, that is just gold. And I think what I learned from that story too is that we need to be paying better attention to what our kids are really saying. That, yeah, they just were seeing this one action and we're trying to address the problem, but weren't really paying attention to the entire picture of it. And by really getting a better understanding of what this child is going through, you were able to help solve that problem. And that's, I think, a huge part of it is that we're not taking in the entire picture. We're just seeing that one, that one reaction or quote unquote, you know, misbehavior and trying to address it right then rather than trying to really understand our child. I think just remembering that idea that behavior is communication. It communicates what skills they don't have. It also communicates what state their nervous system is in at that time. You know, they're dysregulated, where they are in development, all of that. And that's why in No Drama Discipline, we use the phrase chase the why. In my clinical practice that's multidisciplinary, that's one of the reasons I started an interdisciplinary clinic with mental health and speech language and OT and ed therapy and testing and all kinds of things is because when things are really challenging, when behaviors are really, really challenging and we're worried about our kids, we really do need to peel back the layers to get to what's causing it. Otherwise, all that we're doing with timeouts or with consequences or yelling at them to calm down or things that don't work very well we're just addressing symptoms, you know, or we set up a behavioral chart where like they get a sticker if they do it. Well, you know, for some kids that works temporarily. For others, it doesn't work at all. And it never works long term. You have to change it up. But what's interesting about that is like, if you think about discipline, if my kid is coughing chronically, like over months and months and months, I can keep giving him cough syrup to suppress the cough. So he stops coughing so he can sleep at night. But the cough's going to continue. I'm addressing the symptoms, but I'm not figuring out why the coughing is taking place. He may have allergies and he might need allergy shots or allergy medication, or maybe he has pneumonia and he needs an antibiotic or whatever. Unless we get to the what is underneath the behavior, the behaviors are going to continue. And so that's why we want, I think one of our, the way we say it in the book is we want to chase the why. And one of our best 
most important things when it comes to discipline and dealing with our children's behaviors that we want to change is curiosity on our part to become curious about that behavior. I'm going to say, what is that about? Like, I know my kid knows that's not okay. Why is he doing it anyway? Or, oh gosh, like, you know, kids who have sometimes, I have a nephew who would always make silly faces during family pictures and it drove his parents crazy. He would never just smile for a picture. And I observed him one day, I was taking care of him for a couple of weeks. And so I spent some time with him getting to know him when he was four. And I said to his parents, I'm like, he is really, really bright. And he's a super self-conscious kid and he gets embarrassed really easily. So when he's smiling for a picture, he feels a massive wave of embarrassment. And the way he handles that is by making the silly face. That's his best way to handle that embarrassment is to kind of lean into the silliness so it's not so embarrassing. So anyway, there are ways we can just get really curious about it that help us address it at a deeper level so it doesn't continue. That is so cool. Oh, gosh. Okay, now, Tina, we're going to shift a little bit because in your new book, The Bottom Line for Baby, now we're going to go into the baby direction. We've been talking about toddlers, young kids. In this book, you talk about parents falling down the rabbit hole of conflicting advice when making parenting decisions and doing the right thing. And I'd love for you to tell us like, about your book and some of the common concerns and dilemmas that you see parents facing today. This book was kind of an act of love for me because I always joke that I wrote it for my future daughters-in-law <laughs> because I want them to have this lens. But okay, so here I am. I'm a new mom. When I became a mom for the first time, I was living in Uvalde, Texas, rural, didn't know anyone. My husband was teaching at the university there and I was really isolated and I would try to get advice from people or I was trying to make a decision about whether pacifiers were okay or was it okay for him to co-sleep with me? Should I give him probiotics? Does it matter if it's organic um, fibers? Is it okay to lick the pacifier and stick it back in his mouth or is that really gross? And I mean, for him, what about daycare versus stay at home, sleep training, like all of these things. And every time I would read something on the internet or talk to people, I would get a different opinion. And so then I felt really paralyzed and I really wanted to do what was best. So what I did in this book, was I took 65 of the most controversial topics that we get the most competing information about, and I put them into this book alphabetically. So that now parents are asked, if you have a hospital birth, like, do you want the baby to be bathed right away or do you want to wait? Is it okay to put bug spray or sunscreen on your baby? Like, whatever all these things are. So each entry, in the, you can flip just to that entry. And by the way, there is an entry in there on discipline. Even though we don't think about discipline with babies, it's really all about this lens and setting the stage for how we're going to think about it as teaching. Because if it's teaching, it's from the very beginning, even when they're infants. So anyway, each entry, so like if you look up pacifiers, each entry has several components. The competing opinions. Okay, here's one argument pro and one argument con. Then there's a section on what the science says. And I only use really recent, strong, peer-reviewed, good science. Then there's a section called the bottom line. And this is where I say there's no reason to discourage pacifier use based on the science or whatever. And then in about a third of the book, I added a section called on a personal note because it was really important to me to accurately report the science, but I didn't always agree with it. So I wanted to put my voice in there as something separate. The main idea in the book, though, I will say my main point, and I think the introduction to the book is my favorite thing before we get to the alphabetical things. I mean, it really is kind of like a great dictionary or Bible type thing to even take with you in your go bag, because you will have to start making decisions from the very beginning. This is the book I wanted and needed so much as a mom. But here's the bottom line of the bottom line, the main thing. 
what I repeatedly say in the book is there are a lot of ways to be a great parent. And whether or not you co-sleep, whether or not you breastfeed, whether or not you do daycare or hire a nanny or stay home yourself, that one issue is not determining whether or not you're a good parent. And the most important thing is to trust yourself, to trust your baby, and to do what works for your family and to ignore all the other advice. And in fact, I even give some suggestions if you have family members who are like, I've also thought of this book, like, if your mother-in-law is like, why aren't you such and such? You can be like, well, here, read read the entry on babies who are sensitive and why it's okay to you know, not shove them into things that overwhelm them. So you can kind of like hand it off to people. But what I love about it is to really empower parents even to say something like, thank you for loving our baby. For the you know the advice they're getting, thank you for loving our baby and caring so much about our family. I hear what you're saying, and we're taking a lot of things into consideration, and we're going to do what works well for our family. You're not being disrespectful back, but you're also setting a boundary. Like we're doing what works for our family, and every family is different. So I love this book because it gives people really fast form. Within a couple of minutes, you can get the up to date science on any topic that is controversial, and feel empowered to trust yourself, trust your baby, and to ignore other voices and do what works for your family. A lot of the entries are really clear, like 100%, you do not need to do this. The science says this is a bad idea. Other times, like circumcision or other kinds of things, I say, look, there's good science on both sides, so do what feels right to you. Or I may say there's no good science on this. And then sometimes, like I said, I actually contradict what the science says in terms of what I think, and I say why. So you can't even do everything that all the science says. Like, taking care of ourselves as parents, getting good sleep. We know that's really good for protecting against depression and being a good parent, but responding to your baby's needs as they need it any time of the night is also supported by science. Those are not compatible. So really we just have to do what works and it keeps changing over time. But anyway, my hope for this book is that it's a gift to parents as well to not go down, have to go down those rabbit holes to just get quick information and decide what works for them. I love that. And I really encourage, I think it's a book that should be read during pregnancy rather than after the baby. So you can have these things in your mind before your little one comes and be like, okay, I have a good grasp of what feels right for me and for my baby and for our family. So thank you so much for giving us like a good synopsis of what our listeners can expect when they when they get the book. So we've so much enjoyed it. It's a reference book, so you don't even have to read it cover to cover. You know, read the introduction, flip through it. You know, oh, I'm interested in that. You can, it's, it's a resource book, so you can, when it's time for baby led weaning, when your child's ready for eating solids, do you want to do baby led weaning or not? I don't know. Turn to that section, and, and you can read it then. So it's a great little resource book that gives, you know, we don't have time to read long books. We don't have time as new parents, so. It's so true. It's so true. And now, Tina, I feel like, this is probably going to be a hard one for you because you're going to be like, where do I begin? But if you could just offer one piece of advice to a parent trying to raise a well-balanced child, what would that piece of advice be? It's actually an easy question for me. Good. I, my favorite thing to say is you don't have to get it all right. You don't have to be perfect. That what your child needs most from you is you flawed you, imperfect you, confused you, exhausted you, that you showing up with your presence and really delighting in them and being present to what's happening, at least most of the time, 
is the best thing we can do for our kids. And I guess this is a part B, which is the best way we are able to really be present and show up for our kids is to show up for ourselves. We really can't give more than what we have in our resource bank. And so parents, you matter too. But yeah, I think that idea that what your kids need most from you is you and you are their hero with all your flaws. With such a generation of neuroticism when it comes to parenting, and somehow we've gotten convinced that we're supposed to be everything and do everything for our children, and that's actually not what they need. It's actually problematic. So I think just the relationship with them is the most important thing. So beautiful. And Tina, what resources do you recommend that our listeners look into to learn more? I love amplifying other people's work too. Like, obviously I'm proud of my work and my books and what I put on social media and all of that. And I believe it when I put it out there, but there's so much great stuff out there. So I'm often telling like, oh my gosh, here's the bet. Like I loved, you know, Mona Delahook's new book, Brain Body Parenting, or Jess Leahy's book, The Addiction Inoculation. Like when I come across great stuff that I feel like is helpful to me as a parent and a professional, I love sharing it. So I'm a total like connector kind of person. I love amplifying other people's work. So my website is tinabryson.com and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And I'm on all social media, but Instagram's where I'm posting the most. And my handle there is Tina Payne Bryson. My website has tons of free content, lots of videos. And I, I do a lot of that on Instagram as well, because I want to support parents and what I find helpful, I want to share. Ah, well, we are so grateful for it. That is for sure. So we'll be adding all of this information to the show notes so all of our listeners can easily get that info. And any final thoughts or words of advice for our listeners, Tina? Have fun. (laughs) Just delight in them. It goes so fast. My boys are older, 22, 19, and 15. And I think just delighting in them and having some fun and play, 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 play. (laughs) So true. And do you have any exciting news, anything new that we should know about? Oh my goodness. Well, I think the books I'm still really excited about. That's new. And I'm, I think I'm going to be starting a podcast, but I'm not ready to announce that yet. (laughs) Well, you're going to have to keep us posted. That would be amazing. Oh, fantastic. And please, can you tell us again where our listeners can find you? TinaBryson.com and on social media as Tina Payne Bryson. Fantastic. P-A-Y-N-E. Yes. <laughs> this was so interesting and just incredibly informative and fun, Tina. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your tips and obviously your passion with us. I just know that this will help me and so many parents who are listening. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And for our listeners out there to learn more about Dr. Bryson, you can visit her on her website at, as she said, tinabryson.com or Instagram and social media at Tina Payne Bryson. Our team will be posting today's episode on our Baby Chick Facebook page. So if you have any questions or comments about our discussion, please share them with us in the comments section. And as always, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us an honest review. Cheers to no drama. I'm a discipline.